All right, let's stand up together. And I know we stand up a lot here. I keep you in shape. We give you your uh, aerobics. But uh, I do want to, tonight, I, I'm excited about the book of Genesis. I love Genesis. And um, it is the beginning. And tonight, I'm going to give you a little, a little sort of introduction to Genesis. And we're going to go through at least day one in the creation of God. Next week, we're going to go through the six days of creation totally. And I'm going to show you how evolution... Uh, and I say in humility but confidence is just ridiculously foolish. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, you can't be an evolutionist and be a, a, a Bible believer. You can't do it uh, because Genesis is all against it. But anyway, let's, uh, let's look at just, uh, let me see what I've got here right at the beginning. Well, let's pray and I'm going to let you be seated and we'll just move on ahead. And Lord, we just thank you for the book of Genesis, the beginning. We thank you, Lord, for planting us in the faith and grounding us in your word, that we are not moved by the storms and winds of philosophy and errant theology that teach us this all came about by a gradual evolutionary process. No, Lord, you created. And so we thank you for the word of God, and I pray for not only those that are here, but everyone listening by radio that you will root us and ground us and plant us in confidence in your word, in Jesus' mighty name. Now, you put your hand right over your heart and just say with me tonight, Lord, speak to me. Settle me in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And let me just uh, introduce you to Genesis tonight. I, I took Genesis in seminary years ago. It was one of my favorite classes I love the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis is a book of beginnings. There was a beginning. And the origin of the world. The book of Genesis tells us about the origin of our world, human history, families, sin, and the plan of redemption. Everything that began, began in Genesis. Genesis, the book of beginnings. Genesis begins with the vastness of the universe, and it ends with the intimacy of family relations. Uh, Genesis begins with God, and we're going to see that. The book's first 11 chapters, really important here, and this is what I'm going to be focusing on in the next few weeks, contain four epical events in the primeval history of the world. And I want you to remember these events, because this is how um, the world began. First, the creation. First epical event, creation. Then, the fall of man into sin. If you don't see the world, see life, see people, through the viewpoint, through the lens of Genesis, that we are fallen. Every one of us is born with a disease called sin. And therefore, we are the way we are. When you see people and yourself through that lens, it helps you to understand what's going on in our world, make sense of it. The world is a fallen world, beautiful world, but a fallen world. So the fall of man into sin. Then the universal flood of Noah. Did it happen? Absolutely. Did water cover the entire globe? Absolutely. To the top of every mountain? You better believe it. It happened. And archaeology does nothing but confirm that with every passing year. Now, finally, the ill-advised Tower of Babel. What a story that is. So four epical events. Sam with me. The creation. The fall the flood, and the tower. 
Now, those were watershed epics, watershed events that we today still feel the repercussions of. So let's go on. Chapters 12 through 50 cover the lives of four patriarchs called by God to be the ancestors of his special people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Chapters 12 through 50 in Genesis are just biographical sketches of those four personalities. And uh, somebody, matter of fact, my professor described it to me like this. When you're, when you're taking off in a jet, everything seems to whiz by quickly. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. When you're taking off or landing, it looks like everything's going by really rapidly. But once you get up in the sky, things kind of float by. Sometimes you wonder if you're even moving. But I guarantee you, don't step out. You are. But you look at those little puffy clouds, and you picture yourself jumping out and just walking on those clouds, because everything seems to be floating by. And he put it this way, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, major world events are going whoosh, 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 whoosh. In 11 chapters, four epical events take place that were just huge watersheds, but then we start kind of floating. Everything slows down, and we are taken into the biographies of these four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And it's like reading a, a novel or something. That's what the, the chapters 12 through 50 are like. So right now, we're taking off. Now, here's a key point, and you need to understand this. Genesis boldly and unapologetically declares that God created the universe and is involved in every detail of human existence. God did not create and then step out of the picture and say, you're on your own. God is working in history right now. As a matter of fact, history is his story. God is in charge of his world. Don't you ever doubt it. Sometimes it looks like the enemy is in charge or evil men are in charge, but no, God is sovereign. God is providential. And God is in charge of his universe. And God created everything. Amen? The author of Genesis, who was it? Well, the author of Genesis was Moses, who was used by God to pen not only Genesis, but the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. Moses. Jesus clearly accepted the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. He called the first five books the law of Moses. And I've told you on Wednesday nights over and over again, if, if, if it was good with Jesus, it's good with me. If Jesus said Moses was the author, Moses was the author. And Jesus called the first five books the law of Moses. The Pentateuch was, an originally, was originally intended to be read as one complete book by one specific audience. Well, who do you think that uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, who do you think that it was originally written to? Well, the target audience was the generation of Israelites who were ready to enter the promised land under Joshua's leadership. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but it was a long time before I thought about that. Who, were, who was Genesis written to originally? That second generation whose parents had all died in the wilderness. And Moses is writing Genesis to speak to them as now they're about to follow Joshua across the Jordan into the promised land. What a powerful thought. 
But there was not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, De- and Deuteronomy. It was one book. And it was written to them. God's people had never been confronted with such an awesome challenge. They'd been wandering in the wilderness for uh, years and years, decades and decades. And now all of a sudden, they're about to go into the promised land that was promised to Abraham. And here they go, they're about to cross over. And they've never done this before. As a matter of fact, Joshua gave them instructions. And at the end of the instructions, he said, do these things because you've never been this way before. And you know, there are times, folks, when you and I are led by God to go in a direction we've never been before. Come on. And, and how do you prepare yourself for such a journey? Well, you prepare yourself with the Word of God. You build yourself up in the Word of God. Because when you're walking the walk of faith, there's going to be times where you look at the road in front of you and you go, man, I've never been this way before. Never had to believe like this. Never had to walk in the promises like this. Never walked this way before. So here we go. Though the promised land had been deeded to them by God through Abraham, they still would soon face incredible giants, incredible dangers, and troubling unknowns. Not about you guys, but for me, it's the unknowns that are difficult. I, you know, giants, as long as I can see them. But if it's an unknown, that's when I have to say, Oh, Lord, you're my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Because I've never been this way before. This is an unknown. And they were looking at a huge unknown. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses answers questions like this. And our whole world needs to hear this. Who is God? If I'm about to cross the Jordan and start taking city after city after city, and I can't do it on my own, if God's not with me, I'm not going to be able to do it. If God's not with me, we're not going to make it. I want to know for sure, who is God? Who am I? You want to know how to find out who you are? Find out who he is. You want to find out who you are? Go to the foot of the cross and accept Christ into your life and give him your life and you'll begin to discover who you are. They want to know, who am I? And where did I come from? Where am I going? What promises can I stand on? Where can I find ultimate meaning in life? Because I'm about to go where I've never been. And I need some answers, God. So notice with me that that before God sent them on a journey they'd never been on before, to dangers they'd never faced before, he equipped them with his word. That's why I tell you, you've got to get in this word every day. You can't go a day without the Word of God. This Bible is the breakfast of champions, not Wheaties. Amen? You've got to get in the Word of God every single day. Because man shall not live by bread alone. You can't live by bread alone. You've got to have every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I'm going to tell you something about the Word. They had to have it to accomplish what God was giving them to do. You've got to have it to accomplish the will of God for your life. If you get out of the word, it's not if, it's when you begin to stray. If you stay in the word, you will stay with him. If you stoke your spirit daily with the word of God, you will stay lit. If you're starting to get dull and listless and lifeless in your spirit, I guarantee you there's one answer. Get into the Word of God and fill your spirit with the Word of God. It's not my Word like a fire, and it's not my Word like a hammer, says the Lord, that breaks the rock in pieces. 
We need the Word of God. They needed the Word of God. So before they went off on this incredible conquest, God gave them the Pentateuch. Think about that. Moses sought to prepare his people by providing for them a history and a future, both roots and shoots. Amen. The first portion of Genesis provided them with an understanding of roots. We were created by God, both to have dominion over the earth and to fellowship with Him. The book of Genesis reveals that. They needed to understand that. If I'm going to be conquering giants, I need to know who He is and who I am in Him and what my roots are. All right? So they understood by Genesis that I was created to have dominion over the earth. I was created to fellowship with God. I was created to walk with Him, to relate to Him, to know Him, and to be known by Him. I was born to conquer through Him, not by myself. The second portion of Genesis biographically tracks the lives of those four great patriarchs we talked about, and it provides an understanding of shoots, the shoots that came out of the roots, God's calling of Abraham. And his redemptive purpose for his descendants. Got to understand that. Namely, the appearance of Messiah to redeem the world. When God told Abraham in Genesis 12, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. How was that ever going to happen? By the appearance of Messiah through the descendants of Abraham and these people. Genesis gives every indication that Moses intended to write history. And not that he meant for his book, or that he did mean for his book to be read realistically. He clearly was giving us the history of the world and expected us to read it that way. So guess what? It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not an allegory. It's not an illustration. It is not poetic license. In the beginning, God created everything period now here's an important note and I want you to get this I was talking to an agnostic person one time and they told me that this this was their major hang-up with the book of Genesis years ago they told me this and so uh, as always when I asked the Lord to help me get to the bottom of this he really helped me understand it but the opening two chapters of Genesis actually include two complementary stories of creation and you're going to see that as we go through this next couple of weeks the first genesis chapter one through two is a systematic account of the creation of the world the six days of creation that's the first account six days of creation the second account focuses on the creation of you of people and their responsibility in the garden of eden so the first account of creation takes you through the six days of creation. The second account focuses on you because you know why? You are the most important part of the creation of God because you were made in His image. And that makes you more valuable than any other created thing. I know that's hard to get a hold of. And some of you are so beaten down by the devil, you don't feel very valuable. But you were so valuable that God gave His only begotten Son to die on a cross to redeem you. He did not die on the cross to redeem animals or birds or fish 
or planets or galaxies. He died on the cross to redeem you. So the second account of creation focuses totally on the creation of man and woman. Now, let's read Genesis 1-1 together, can we? Read it out loud with me, good and loud. Let's tell the devil the truth. In the beginning, God prepared, formed, fashioned, and created the heavens and the earth. Period. Amen. <laughs> and how that changes things when you really get a hold of it. <clears throat> We did not come about as some evolutionary process. No, we were immediately created instantaneously by the Word of God. The Bible begins with God. It does not explain God's existence, and it doesn't start with God, then set Him aside. The Bible begins with God. In the beginning, we're told there's a beginning. In the beginning, there was a beginning. God. There He was. There He was. The Bible opens up unapologetically and deliberately with the amazing statement, in the beginning, God created. Wow. That's where you came from and where I came from and where everything we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, that's where it came from, the creative power of God. Now, the first word used for God in the whole Bible is Elohim, very important. Everybody say with me, Elohim. Now, there's several names for God in the Bible, and if you've been with me very long, you've heard me teach on that, but the very first introduction of God giving to, given to us in the Bible is the Hebrew word Elohim, and it means supremely powerful, omnipotent, that means all-powerful, and sovereign, mighty God. He is in charge sovereignly of His universe. It is always used to refer to God Almighty, the Creator. When the word Elohim is used, it is talking about Creator God. God the Creator of all things. It's in the plural form. Isn't that interesting? Elohim is plural. It's not singular, it's plural. I tell you, the Word of God, I love it. It amazes me. It astounds me. It, it just rocks my world. Because here's Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He starts writing to these people that are about to cross the Jordan and go take the promised land. Of course, God intended Genesis to be for all of us down through the ages till the day that the world ended. But here it is, and Moses writes down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, in the beginning, plural, Elohim, created. That points to the existence of the three-in-one the Trinity. Just before the creation of man, Genesis quotes God as saying, can you read it with me? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Wow. So immediately Moses introduces us in the first verse of the Holy Bible to a Trinitarian God. Let us make man in our image in our likeness. Wow. So you know what? You may not feel very pretty when you look in the mirror, but you're in God's image. Now, what is God? He's, he's three in one, isn't he? He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. What are you? You are body, you are soul, and you are spirit. 
You're created in the image of God. You are three in one. You are tripart. You are made up of three. Body, soul, and spirit. Your body will perish and die, but it will be resurrected on the day of judgment and the day of the resurrection, and it will be made into a glorified body. Your spirit is eternal. You're made in the image of God. He said, let us make man in our image. And that's why chapter 2, or the second account of creation, is solely and exclusively devoted to people. But notice, it's three-part God. This clearly signifies the the existence of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Elohim created the heavens, the sky, and the earth, the land, with a word. Let there be. And it was. Now you're holding in your hand your Bible. That's the Word of God. Word of God. Now, everything above, when it says He created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth, everything above includes endless space, filled with universes, galaxies, planets, and stars, and our telescopes, as powerful as they are, have still not reached the end, have not discovered the final curve in the end of this vast space the Word of God created. In the beginning, Elohim created space, universes, galaxies, planets, and stars, and land. Key point, the word create means to shape or to form. Now, the original Hebrew word for create is bara. It signifies that God did not create the universe from existing material, like we would take Play-Doh and shape it into something. How many of you ever played with Play-Doh? You know, okay. Or Silly Putty or Flubber. You remember Flubber? You baby boomers remember Flubber. I remember when my mother took me to that Fred McMurray movie, when I was eight years old, the son of Flubber, it's still etched in my memory because I didn't care about the movie. I wanted that Flubber they made available after the movie. And I was fascinated with that bouncy, flubbery stuff. But listen, what it's saying, God did not take something existing and form and shape it into something new or different. No. Creatio ex nihilo. The Latin. He created from nothing. He was there. Period. And God said, let there be. And from nothing came something. The evolutionists will tell you, well, no, no, no. We evolved from what was already there, but then you always got to take them back to, well, whatever it was where it started, where did the beginning come from? And they can never make hide or hair of that. Because If you believe we evolved from something, how did something come into being? Where did something, the original something, come from? There is no answer. Because something came from no thing but the Word of God. He created, He spoke, let there be. And that's God. That's God. That's very, very important because that's the same God who can speak to someone, speak his word. He sent his word and healed them. 
Uh, the Word of God is always is continuously active in the Bible. He sent His Word and the Red Sea divided. He sent His Word and the blind saw, the deaf heard. Jesus walked on the water. He sent His Word. The Word of God is so crucial, so important. And in creation, you find Him right here. Elohim, the three-in-one, spoke. And out of nothing, something suddenly appeared. Now this opening phrase marks the beginning of time. See, there can't be time unless there's something to wear out. If there's nothing to wear out, there can't be time. If you're spirit, there is no time. Only with material things does time exist. Because anything material wears out. I hate to break it to you, you wearing out. How many of you have looked in the mirror late, lately and, oh, and realize I'm wearing out? <laughs> it's sad. I mean, hey, it reaches a place where Max Factor can't help you. You're wearing out. But see, so you are subject to time. But if you're spirit, there is no time. God inhabits eternity, not time. God inhabits eternity. So he stepped into time when he came in the person of Jesus Christ. But now, the opening phrase marks the beginning of time in the beginning and closes with the vastness of the universe. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, look at verse 2. Read it with me. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Isn't that powerful? Now, look at this. The earth, as described by Moses in verse 2, was characterized in three ways. Really important. What did the original earth look like after he had created it? Here it is. It was without form and void. It was darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving across the face of the waters. This suggests that the earth was in a pristine, untouched state. Not yet ready for human habitation. What God is about to do is prepare the earth for that very thing, for you and I to inhabit it. But in the beginning, when it was without form and void, it was not ready for you and me. God had to make it ready, and that's what he did in the six days of creation. The Hebrew words translated without form and void elsewhere in the Bible describe an empty land or a wasteland. Uh, Isaiah 34, you can look these verses up. A land uninhabitable like the wilderness through which Moses led the, the uh, Israelites. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. Here's a description, same Hebrew verbiage uh, of without form and void. He found them in a desert land, in an empty, howling wasteland. He surrounded them and watched over them. I love this last part. He guarded them as he would guard his own eyes. How closely is God watching over you? How closely would you guard your own eyes? He watches over you and guards you like he would guard his own eyes. Isn't that powerful? That means you're being watched. Now, do you, do you get the feel here? The wilderness was not really fit for, hum, human, uh, for humanity, for people. And the original without form and void means it wasn't ready for the human race. Moses evidently chose to describe the pristine earth as a desert to help these wandering Israel folks understand that just as God had prepared the entire earth for human habitation, so he was also leading them out of a desert and into a specially prepared homeland. 
See, where God guides you, he's going to prepare it for you. He prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. It, you know what? God's already got some things prepared for you that if you could see them right now, you'd be on your feet shouting and this church service would be over. Because where he's, he, he calls you to something, he prepares for your arrival, and then he calls you out to come and get it. So he was calling Israel to the promised land, and the promised land was ready by the time they got to it for them to go and inhabit it. And he's telling us that the earth originally was without form and void, but he didn't leave it there. He prepared it for human habitation in the six days of creation. Now, the phrase, the face of the deep, the Spirit of God was moving on the face of the deep, and the face of the waters similarly describe a world unsuitable for human habitation. Now, rather than expressing the meaning of too little water here, like in a desert, this condition described in Genesis 1 is one of too much water. The earth was covered in water, and God deals with that in just a couple of verses. Finally, in verse 2, we're introduced to an aspect of God's character that becomes more developed as the Bible unfolds, and it's this. Moses notes that the Spirit of God, and I'm preaching on the Holy Spirit this Sunday. I can't wait. Matter of fact, I'm going to call it, What Price for a Move of God? And I'm going to preach on the Holy Ghost. But that's Sunday. You better be here. But I, anything that has to do with the Holy Spirit, I just... It moves me. And look at this. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters in that original, without form and void, there was the Holy Spirit moving on the waters. The Holy Spirit of God hovered over and protected the yet-to-be-finished earth. Just before the creative act, the Spirit of God was present. And He's the same way today. Jesus said when the Spirit of God moves, He's like the wind. You can have somebody lost and going to hell in a handcart, living in wickedness and evil and not caring one whit about it, and suddenly they are under conviction. They are calling out in the name of Christ, and they are saved. And right before that new man is created, the Holy Ghost is present. God speaks it. The Son amends it. The Spirit executes it. So here's the Spirit of God. Right there in the very beginning, and amazingly, this completes the picture of the entire God's, Godhead's involvement in creation. We know that God the Father, Elohim, was there, but do you know that John tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ was involved, and this takes him from being just any other philosopher or teacher or good man or inspirational personality or another religious leader. No, my friends, he's not even close to that. He's not anywhere in the same ballpark as that. In the beginning, John 1, 1. So Genesis opens up, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1 opens up, in the beginning, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. It already existed. The Word. And the Word was with God. And what was the Word? Say it with me. The Word was God. So when Jesus Christ looked you in the eyeball when he was here on earth in the flesh, God was looking you in the eye. That's why he would look at you and know exactly who you were, what your past was, what your future was, what your hang-ups were. He read your mail before you even got in front of him because he was God. He existed in the beginning with God. So here's Elohim 
the second person in the Trinity, Jesus. John says, the Word was with God, He was, uh, was God, and He existed in the beginning with God. And look at this, God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through your Jesus. Now, does that not bring Him up to another level altogether? You say, well, Pastor, I, I didn't know that Jesus was God. Well, you're in the right church, because it's about time you learned it, that that man that hung on the cross for you was God. God wrapped himself in skin, came to planet earth to die for our sins. When they whipped him, he was God. When they crucified him, God was allowing his own creation to crucify him. When he rose from the dead, he was God. When Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, opened blind eyes, that was God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? Look at me. Look at the way I talk to people, respond to people, teach, heal, look at me, watch me, watch me move, watch me teach, watch me act. Every move I make, you're watching God. That's why you don't fool with Jesus. He came as the lamb. He's going to come back as the lion. And this Jesus who was God is going to call the whole world in front of him, judge every nation for what they have done, judge every nation for their sins, is going to call everybody out of the grave. This Jesus, he was, he was in that Elohim, God the Father, God the Son. Nothing was created except through him. So when the stars were flung into space, it was through him. The beautiful creation, the animals, the butterflies, the insects, the fishes of the sea, the blue sky, the deep oceans, the galaxies, the incredible creation, all went through the fingertips of Jesus. He was there. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty Lord we serve. And if anybody ever teaches you anything less than that, get out of there. Don't let anybody undermine the ministry and work and person of Jesus Christ. He was in the Elohim. Part of the Elohim, he was God, the Son. Now, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all active and flowing in perfect unity at the creation of the cosmos. Powerful stuff. Francis Schaeffer wrote these words, quote, The universe had a personal beginning, a personal beginning on the high order of the Trinity. Powerful stuff. Now here's the summary. Read them with me, can you? God made everything out of nothing. And then to, second, the first stage of creation was a world not yet suitable for human life. And then you come to the six creative days. Now the six creative days of creation are described from a terrestrial viewpoint. As if we were standing on the earth watching God work. When you read it, we're kind of made literary spectators of what God is doing. Under the Holy Spirit's direction, Moses involved his audience as literary spectators of God's amazing creative activity. We get to sit there and watch it happen. Now here's some neat stuff. Each day's activity begins with God said, let there be. And each day ends with, and it was so. And God saw that it was what? Okay? No? Good. So anything God does is good. So you got to be good because he made you. That is, you, you've got to be valuable because he made you. Some of you have looked in the mirror 
at times in your life and said, thanks a lot, God. But when you understand that he made you, you say, thank you, God. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, not evolved. This reveals the orderliness, and this is our God, the orderliness and the care with which God created. Each phrase reveals something about God and his plan for the world. First, we see that God created effortlessly with a word. He's a mighty God. Second, each element of creation was an expression of himself. In fact, his creation is an undeniable proof of his existence. Paul wrote, for since the creation of the world, not the evolution of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. What is clearly seen in nature? His power and divine nature are revealed in the creation. Being understood from what has been made so that nobody is going to have an excuse. Well, God, I didn't understand. God, I didn't really know you were there. God, I just kind of, you know, never really got a hold of it. I'm sorry. I didn't believe in you. No, God will say, you're without excuse because if you've even seen a tree, you've seen the creation of God. And he says, you will be brought into account for the fact you saw the creation and rejected him. Powerful. The creation is also a reflection of the goodness of God. Following each creative act, God declared that it was good. James tells us these words, quote, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The same God we worship tonight is the same God they worshiped in the day of Pentecost. He does not change, and he's good. And everything he does, every good gift, every perfect gift flows from him because everything God does, it's good. Amen. It's good. Now, God's declaration that it was good is also evidence that everything necessary for proper human life was in place because he was getting the world ready for you. Wow. Only after the creation of man did God stick a word in front of good. What did he say? very good so if he looked at all the birds and animals and trees and galaxies and said that's good and he looked at you and said very good then you're valuable in the first three days God also named what he created we are told that God called the light day and the darkness he called night and God called the expanse sky and God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters. He called seas. Well, what does that matter? Granting somebody or something a name in ancient times implied ownership and hence control. And so guess what? I don't worry about global warming. Can I tell you that? <laughs> I don't worry about global warming because I know who's in charge of the globe. And the Bible doesn't allow for global warming. The Bible does not allow for global warming. So can I, at the risk of offending somebody, just in love say, it's a scam. Because right here, God named his creation, and by doing that, he said, I've got control. It's under my control. And nowhere in prophecy does it ever show that the world heats up and everybody dies until judgment and God heats it up. And it's not done by carbon. Is done by God fuel. Okay? 
By naming uh, things such as light, darkness, sky, water, and dry land, God was declaring his ownership over the forces of nature. This is why we so often find in the Bible that God changes the name of a person to whom he has revealed himself and subsequently called. Saul became Paul. Jacob became Israel. Peter became the rock and so forth. In other words, he was saying to these men, and he says to you and me, now you are mine. And in heaven, you're going to get a new name. Revelations reveals. So enjoy the one you got while you got it, because one day you're going to lose it, and you're getting a name from him. The account of each creative day, the account of each creative day ends with the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning, and it was the first day, second day, third day. Moses clearly intended for his readers to understand creation in terms of the days of a week. Okay? For the Jews, the 24-hour period called day begins in the evening at sundown. They understood Moses' words to mean that God created his universe in 24-hour segments. Hello, everybody. Just want to be sure you get that. Well, that, that's a lot of work in one day. Hey, we're talking about somebody who said, let there be. And it was. He didn't need a lot of time. The six creative days are grouped as follows. And uh, first one is light. Day one, light. God said, let there be light. Day two, waters beneath, waters above. Day three. Dry land, seas, and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, the fish and the birds. Day six, animals, and then people. Six days of creation. Interestingly, catch this. You may have never thought about this. During the first three days... God made the arenas into which the actors of days four through six were placed. The first three days were preparation for the creatures he was going to put there. So when God wants you once again to go somewhere or arrive somewhere, he's going to prepare it for you so it's ready when you arrive, including I go to heaven to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's still a carpenter in heaven. He is still building mansions. And what did he say? That's where you're going to end up. So I'm going ahead of you to do what I've always done. Prepare your place before you arrive. That's the way of God. The galaxies needed the vast expanse of sky. And so he made that first. The birds, the animals, and the fish needed the land and the sea. So he made the land and the sea first. Each day built on the previous day, providing what was necessary to, su to sustain life, created on the days that followed. He prepares for you and for me. Hallelujah. I think about this building. Uh, when I first saw this building, I said, no way. I bound it. I loosed it. I walked away from it. I said, it's not God. And he kept calling me back and saying, that's your building. I wanted something inside the loop. Didn't want to be outside the loop. And yet he kept bringing me back. He said, this is it. Now I look at this and I see that I've learned. I've learned that, that many people tried to buy it before we got it. I've heard that it was going for twice the money before we got it. And what it 
is clear to me now is that God had this prepared for us before we arrived. And he's got so many things prepared for you right now for your tomorrows. He goes before you and prepares a place for you. He doesn't get you there and go, oh, wait a minute, I need to fix some things up. No, he gets it ready for you. And isn't heaven going to be the ultimate preparation place? Isn't that going to be it? Amen. Now, on day one, God created light. Let me just finish with, with light, and then we'll, finish, we'll wrap this up tonight, and I'll deal with the six days of creation and evolution next week. Now, day one, God created light. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was what, everyone? Good. And he separated light from dark. Now, God called the light. He named it day. And in the darkness he called night. So he named the day and he named the night. And there was evening and there was morning, a 24-hour period, and that was the first day. So on the first day, the God of light created light. Now, interestingly, God doesn't create the sun until day four. Now, wait a minute. There's no sun until day four. But on day one, he creates the light. I'm confused. And see, atheists read that and say, see, it doesn't even make sense. Oh, yeah, it does. It makes all kinds of sense. So where did the light come from? Scientifically, it can't be explained. But you know what? Scientifically, it doesn't need to be explained. As there was no natural source from which the light shone. So if there was no natural source like sun or moon or stars, where did light come from? It's easy to answer from the Bible. Spiritually, this is not difficult. We're told repeatedly in Scripture that God is light. He doesn't just shine light. He is light. We're told that God is love. And we're told that God is light. Look at this. This is the message John says that we have heard from him and declare to you. Read it with me, everybody. God is light. In him, there is not one scintilla of darkness, the revised Wickwire version. In him, there is not one bit of darkness at all. God is pure, unadulterated light. Paul said that God alone is immortal, and where does he live? He lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. So God lives in unapproachable light, and God is pure, uncompromised light. And the Apostle John in the book of Revelation describes heaven this way. Get a hold of this. Quote, the city, the new city, does not need the sun. or the moon, to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is the lamp of the city. Now, when I read that, here's what I see. Genesis, the beginning, Revelation is the end. Genesis, the beginning of time. Revelation is the end of time. In the beginning in Genesis, the sun wasn't needed because God was the light. When he said, let there be light, it was his light. In the end, once again, the sun isn't needed for God is the light. Everything that was at the beginning is restored 
at the end. So we don't need the sun. We don't need flashlights. We don't need 100-watt bulbs. We don't need Thomas Edison. We don't need fluorescence. The Son of God lights up his city. When the Lord comes into a place, light comes into a place. When he penetrates into a soul, light floods that soul. God makes everything light. He reveals the hidden works of darkness by shining on them his light. So, here we have, in the end, we won't need a sun in the beginning. We didn't on day one either. As the earth began with God himself providing the light needed to dispel the darkness... So earth will end with a heaven in which God is once again the light that shines. Amen. Can we stand together? You know, what a glorious day that that will be. What a glorious day that will be. Can you see with me that Jesus Christ restored paradise lost? Paradise was lost. We're going to see that when we see men falling, man falling. But in the end... It's all restored right down to the source of light. So, Lord, we just thank you right now for the incredible light of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the light that Jesus Christ brings into every heart. The bright and the morning star. We thank you, Lord, that you have shined your light on our souls. And we thank you for that precious revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Thank you, Lord, that we see you created everything from nothing with your word. And thank you, Lord, that we see that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, were all intimately involved in the creation of the world and the creation of men and women. Thank you, Lord, that God created everything. And can we worship the Lord who created before we go tonight? Let's just worship Him. Jesus, Jesus, there is no one like you. And we worship and adore. before you. Sing it, everyone. You are wonderful. You are... Sing it again. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, Jesus. There is no one like you. And we worship and adore you. Jesus, all creation bows before you. You are wonderful. You are everything. Amen. Well, if you love him, give him a hand of praise tonight before we go. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.